Broadway's newest icon is neither a young diva nor a dashing leading man. Instead, it's the glowing red steps of the Theater Development Fund's world-famous TKTS booth in Times Square, which has made discounted theater-going available for more than 35 years, long before today's avalanche of discount offers and online promotions. But beyond the steps, TDF offers a wide variety of programs that make theater more accessible to audiences and support the very productions you're all so eager to see. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to welcome the Executive Director of the Theatre Development Fund, Victoria Bailey. Hi, Tori. Hi, how are you? Good to be here. Okay, I said TKTS, but it seems to be one of those things that people call it TKTS, call it the tickets booth, call it the half-price booth. What's right? Uh, I guess technically what's right would be the TKTS booth. We at the office, we actually call it the trailer, which is uh, probably a little bit confusing. But when the booth first opened, um, the booth the, the booth was a temporary – we either call it the trailer or the booth actually. But when when we first opened and started up for business, no one knew whether or not it would last. No one knew whether this would be a successful experiment or this would be a kind of one-time – one summer only event. And so the way – they tried to keep costs down. The city of New York, the Parks Department, TDF and, and the Broadway League all worked together. And in an effort to keep costs down, they got a donated construction trailer and so the first booth ran out the, the booth first ran out of a donated construction trailer and in fact as the booth grew because of course it was not a it was not a flash in the pan it was not a one summer only event but in fact almost instantly became tremendously successful um, as the booth grew and we needed more windows at the booth it went from being one construction trailer to being two construction trailers and in fact one of the reasons for the project that ultimately led to the new red steps was a sense that it was really time after 30 some years for the TKTS booth to have a permanent home and so that, that was really part of that was the impetus for the design competition that was the beginning of what has become the Red Steps. I was fascinated. Very recently in Variety, um, you were interviewed uh, about, in general, what's going on in Times Square. But talking about uh, the booth, um, and now I'm reading from Variety, she adds that according to TDF surveys, a surprising number of people lounging on the booth steps or sunbathing in the plaza don't actually know they can purchase theater tickets there, too. What's the challenge? It was there? well. The challenge is. I mean, what's interesting is, one before the red steps, you didn't come to Duffy Square unless you were going to the TKTS booth. I mean, basically, people who came to the square, there were people I think who were coming to see the statue, which has its own place, kind of in. New York City history, but by and large, everyone who came to Duffy Square was coming to buy tickets. Now, you either there are people who are coming to see the Red Steps because they've heard about them, or they're walking. I mean, the really fabulous thing is they're walking down Broadway, they're walking down Seventh Avenue, and they're in the middle of Times Square. And for the first time ever, they can just sit. They see these Red Steps. If you watch people on the steps, almost everyone does the same thing. They get they come there, they look at the steps, and they walk up the steps to the top because they want to see the view from the top. Um, so people are coming just to see the steps. And from the beginning, I was curious whether or not, even if they were there on the steps, they would know that, in fact, we were selling theater tickets there. And so we've been working with uh, someone this summer who's been informally surveying people on the steps, talking to people on the steps, talking to people in line because it's our busy season. And, in fact, a whole bunch of people on the steps have no idea 
that right underneath them is a place where you can buy tickets to go to the theater. A couple of people said, oh, that's interesting. I wondered why all these people were standing <laughs> on the huh. line. So I think the challenge and the opportunity for us, certainly for TDF and, and for the theater field as a whole, um, is to try and find ways maybe. It's very exciting to know that we actually may have in front of us people who don't go to the theater who maybe could be talked to about going to the theater. I mean, one of the things that Theater Development Fund spends a lot of time doing is working on, we're really about building audiences. That's one of the things that we're about. And so, you know, you're always a little bit, how do I reach the people who aren't going? Well, if the people who aren't going to the theater are sitting right there on the steps, I think in the long run, if we can figure out how to engage in conversations, we might actually be able to lure some of them into the theater. I'll make a confession. I, on occasion, if I'm around in Times Square on a weekend and have a little time, I'll often linger around the lines because I'm curious Mm -hmm. about the conversations. And actually, if you stand long enough at um, one of the lighted signs listing what's available, people inevitably come up to you and start asking you, hmm, have you seen this? What do you think of this? Now, clearly, I don't indicate that I'm in any way involved in right. the theater wing or the Tony Awards. I'm just such some some guy standing there. And it's fascinating conversations to begin. People people are eager for that. People are very I mean one of the part of what what part of the reason we got into this conversation with people on the steps is what we've been trying out this summer is having people just people who we engage just have conversations with people not about a specific show but really about this is how it works. Do you have questions? Because I think one of the things that those of us inside the theater have to remind ourselves of is if you don't know and you don't go to the theater a lot, certainly if you're a first-time theater goer, it's not so easy necessarily to know all the rules. It's, it can be a little off-putting. And, and one of the great strengths of the booth, I think, is that it, it not only can you buy tickets at a price people you know people can afford the tickets, but it really is a place where people can go and talk and get advice. And some of that anxiety that I think you feel when you do something for the first time, that edge is gone. We know from formal surveying that close to a third of the people online are first-time Broadway theater hmm. goers. So we are really a place where people know to go to get a ticket. So if they don't know about the ABCs and they don't know about checking the listings and they don't know about your website or ours or any, you know, whole or the leagues or a whole host of other information sources. They do know or they hear through the grapevine, they're in college, a friend says, you go to this place in Times Square and you can get tickets, you can afford it, and there'll be people there who can tell you what's going on. And and that I think is a, you know, I one of the things that I love about the steps and and the project is this idea that finally in the midst of all of the other things that have changed in Times Square, you know, the theater has a place that is kind of its town square and it's a kind of central location where people can learn and hang out and talk about theater. Well, it is. It's interesting in that way. I mean, I have to confess, I haven't stood in the in the line for the booth in a few years, <laughs> but I remember in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, I certainly did. And it was fascinating, the nature of the conversations would strike up. And some would argue that chat rooms are the town square now for conversation about theater. But I guess that's with that's with a particular that's, kind see, of theater that's, goer. That chat rooms are, are there and are the town square for people who already know about the theater 
are totally educated about the theater, who know ins and outs and nuances. We're the town square for what I would call the casual theater goer. And I think if you care about theater and you think about audiences, most people in this country are, in fact, casual theater goers. Mm. And so the, the deal is to engage the casual theater goer and, in fact, you know, if if you're if people go twice a year and you can get someone to go three times a year, that's you know that's a phenomenal increase in is what they call participation. Even though it's only going to three times a year, and you know most weeks you put you and I go to the theater more than three times a week, but we're different, right? right. So, it, and and that I think is why the chat rooms are for those who are already totally immersed. Town squares are for people who want to learn. They, in essence, you want to listen to the town crier. Well, and now you can sit around in the town square and That's do all right, that. That's right, and you can sit and now, watch. Now, I should reference as well, I don't want to recap all of it, but obviously there's a great deal of curiosity about the booth because uh, you were fielding questions through the New York Times arts beat, and I was struck by the fact that they there were so many questions and so many answers um, that they had to spread it out over three days. I was surprised. I was really surprised. It, it was interesting because I it was um, it wasn't. I did not expect that volume of response back. And of course, one of the things that's you know that's changed because there are blogs and there are art speeds and there are Q and As and you know is that you 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 do something like that and you take all the questions you get and you know you never know whether people are going to be happy or unhappier and we serve so many people in the course of a year that i was a very surprised at the level of interest and b i felt really good about the fact that by and large most of the people that were commenting or had questions or whatever a lot of the you know we're doing exactly what it is that we want to be doing which is we're getting people to the theater we're serving them, you know, the, the ticket sellers in the booth have a tremendously difficult job because they are, first and foremost, you know, they're there to sell tickets. They're set there to sell as many tickets as they can as quickly as they can. They deal with 20 different languages in a day. They are the face of New York City. They're dealing in large part with people who don't necessarily know exactly what they want to see. And it's a real – and they're working – you know, in the summer, they're working. They're working from nine o'clock in the morning on Wednesday. They close at two thirty, and they're back open again at three. And some of them are, you know, choose to do the whole day. I mean, it's a major. It's it's a really tough job, and you'll be sitting there, and they can, of course, only see the people in front of them. But you know, the the head treasurer will periodically go look outside and see just how long the line is, and so. You know, that's the I, – I think I I was pleased the number of people who really felt that with all of that going on, um, they really were getting the help. You know, they were getting the help that they wanted. They were engaged. I remember the day um, – the first day of the, of the technician's strike. Um, I went to the booth in the morning and I s- chatted with the ticket sellers a while and I said there's going to be a lot of people here today – who are going to be really disappointed because, of course, it was a Saturday morning. The tourists didn't really know yet that Broadway was dark, right? Mm. We didn't know you didn't because, as you remember, it happened. No one was sure until the very last minute that it was actually going to happen. And so I went in and was chatting with the ticket sellers, and I said, you know, your job today is to make sure that the tourists here don't leave angry at New York. And they all – I mean, we all Mm. were on the same page. I didn't have to tell them that. And so it was – 
you know, would you like to go <laughs> make sure they know how to go to the Museum of Natural History? I mean, or that off Broadway. Or off because Broadway, Because we should exactly, say that it's not we, exclusively no, it's not, a Broadway Right. So venue. that, you know, f- to convince people to go off Broadway, which we, we had practice with during the musicians' strike, which was the – that was the, my favorite. I would, I'd be happy to go off Broadway if I knew where it was, said one customer. So we then immediately started having maps available. Um, but to go off Broadway and then just to remind them that there were a lot of other things they could do in New York because, mm. you know, that was part of our job that day. I mean, we view ourselves as not only, you know, not only are we about supporting the theater by selling tickets, we're a face of New York City. You glancingly referred to the number of tickets you sell at the booth. What is an average week? Um, in the summer or, you know, a holiday week, we probably we will sell between 30 and 33,000 tickets a week. In the depths of winter when it's cold and there aren't a lot of people in town, we probably sell about eighteen to 20,000 mm-hmm. tickets a week. So it's, you know, and most people are buying two. So, you know, that means you're talking to 15 and, that you know, there are peak days and slower days. But a peak day in the summer is 8,000 8, tickets. So it's a lot of tickets. In my introduction, I made reference to the fact that the booth predates the sort of the the onslaught of discount mailers, mm-hmm. online offers, et cetera, et cetera. Has that changed the business at the booth at all when yeah, when I, discounts of varying levels are available in so I many think, different ways? I think the primary impact of that was probably felt – I've been at TDF since the spring of 2001, and it's actually been quite constant since I've been there. I think, you know, the peak days of the early 90s, I think there's been a tailing off. That I think we've had, you know, we saw a, small, a decline in some ticket sales in the 90s, probably as a reflect of the advent of some, I think, of the discount mailers much more than the online ticket sales. But I think that the a lot of the focus of the discount offers is primarily what they call multi-buyers, right? It's, the, it's marketing strategies, sending discount offers or emailing discount offers to people who already go to the theater because you know your yield on that's going to be stronger. We serve so many first-time theater goers and so many incidental theater goers that these are people who aren't even necessarily a lot of them in the universe, of the people that are getting the discount offers. So sure, it makes a difference because, again, if you're savvy or you read the guidebooks, you know that you can go online. But there's that component of wanting to know what's happening and wanting advice and wanting to talk to other people that an online site is never going to replace. And it's that sense of, I want to know, should I see this one? Should I see that one? What about my children? I know when my, my kids are teenagers and when they go stand online at the booth, they're always bombarded with people asking questions because they're teenagers and they're there mm. by themselves. And so tourists who have teenage kids will say to them, what did you like? Did you like this? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they, they get a little tired of it sometimes. But I say, no, that's your job. <laughs> no, right? actually, it's your job. <laughs> no, but-, <laughs> but they're the New Yorkers. They can stand there and tell people. I often joke with people who, who talk to me about my job at the wing and I say, you know, I, I didn't grow up dreaming of – being involved in running the Tony Awards, I, in my youthful fantasies, I I wanted to maybe win one. <laughs> right. um, I don't think we all practiced you know, acceptance speeches. I, I think so. I also don't think we grow up wanting to run 
an organization like TDF because it's so singular in what it does. So, so I want to talk a little bit about how you found your way to TDF. So let's start with, you know, just how did you come to your love of theater? Um, since before I can remember, I really am. I, I was one of those kids who, from the very beginning, liked the theater, and I took. I grew up in Washington D.C. and I took theater classes. Um, I started. There was a Arena Stage had a very young program at that time called Living Stage, which was a program with classes. And I started. My I was very lucky. My parents took me to the theater. Beyond that, my parents went to the theater, and I, I saw a really interesting piece in the last. The the Broadway League does demographic studies, as you know, every year on Broadway audiences. And I think this was a study two years ago. In addition to asking the question, did you go to the theater when you were young? They said, did your parents go to the theater? And the impact on theater going, I think this was the League study. It was The impact on theater going was as important, I think, if your parents went as if you went. And when I, I thought, that's odd. And then I thought back to my own childhood. What I remember first is album covers. What I remember first is the musicals that I would listen to at home of shows that my parents had seen before I was old enough to go. So I was listening to South Pacific or The Boys from Syracuse or My Fair Lady before I had ever seen anything. I didn't see my first big Broadway musical till I was 10, but I had listened to scores for you know, since I was six or seven. So that's kind of, uh, having it around appears to also be really important. Parents who go and it just becomes part, it's like having books at home means your kid's a better reader. It seems that having theater stuff at home so that it begins to be part of your whatever, your consciousness. So I took classes and I went to the theater. They started taking me to the theater when I was 10 um, and Washington was – there was some theater in town. It wasn't like living in New York, but there was Arena and there was the National and then the Kennedy Center. It predated – there's a lot of theaters now yeah, in this Washington. Was, it was different. When I, no, when, I, yeah. when I was young, there was Arena and there was a place called the Washington Theater Club where I took classes, which did mostly new plays. And that was, in fact, where I first started – I started hanging out in a theater doing plays when I was like 12 years old. And so that was kind of – I remember seeing um, – they did – I th- the pre-New York, they did the premiere of uh, The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man and the Moon Marigolds. So, I mean, they were doing really serious plays. Um, when I was 16, we moved to Minneapolis, and there was there's a one of the preeminent children's theaters in the country is in Minneapolis, the Children's Theater Company. And at the time when I was in Minneapolis, they not only did they have the professional theater, but they had a school. And so I went to my academic school in the morning, and then I went to theater school, performance school in the afternoon, and performed with the company. And so that was my junior and senior year in high school. And I was I applied to conservatories, but did not get in. So that was the end of my performing career. Was when I didn't get into. I, you know, I wanted to go to Carnegie Mellon, and I didn't get in. Uh-huh. So I went to college. And, so you went to college for what? Uh, I went to Yale, and I majored in history because I figured if I was at school, I was going to do something that they have a very strong undergraduate theater program now. It wasn't as strong when I was there. Um, but I, they have a whole bunch of extracurricular theater there, right. and a large the, the undergraduate the the largest undergraduate theater organization has access to a big proscenium, six hundred seat theater, and I stage managed and worked with that organization. And because 
we were in the same building as the drama school. I got to know a lot of folks in the drama school, the undergraduates and the drama school students interacted. Drama school designers would do undergraduate shows and directors. And so I really stayed very immersed in what I loved. And um, I had a brief moment between my sophomore and junior year in college where I thought maybe I would be a lawyer. And How long did that last? Um, Brie, you it, said was, it, was it was a summer, and my okay. parents introduced me to every young, attractive lawyer in Minneapolis that summer that they could lay their hands on. And then I went back to school and stayed in the theater and uh, started work right after college. And started work doing what? Uh, my first job was – it's interesting because I'm at a service organization now. My my first job in New York was, was in New York, and it was an organization with a very unwieldy name called the Foundation for the Extension and Development of the American Professional Theater, otherwise known as FADAPT. And FADAPT was an organization um, run by a guy named Fred Vogel, and his associate was uh, – that. Uh, person named Joe Melillo, who, of course, now runs BAM. Um, and what FIDAP did was it provided consulting services for brand-new theaters around the country, emerging not-for-profit theaters. And this was in the late 70s, and there were theaters opening. As you know, this was the explosion kind of in the regional theater movement. And it was a fabulous first job. I answered the phones, um, kept the books, counted public publications. They had a middle management program where it was a series of four-week intensives at the O'Neill Center working with middle managers, and then they also had a national conference. Um, and that was basically an administrative assistant position. But it gave me an opportunity. I met all the consultants who, of course, were managing directors from all over the country. And so I really was blessed. It was really a fabulous first job because it gave me a, a sense of everything that was going on. It it, it helped me to learn who the who the – key players were, and I was exposed to all sorts of really smart ideas early on. I then, for personal reasons, went back to New Haven, where I ran the box office and group sales stuff at the Yale Rep for Lloyd Richards' first two seasons, which was very exciting at Yale, and then came back to New York and went to work at the Manhattan Theater Club. As you know. <laughs> oh, well, your tenure was 19 years. My tenure was nine months. Right. We didn't so. work there very lo- together very long, but we did have the pleasure of working together there. No, I was there 19 years from um, – I started in the business office when the theater was on 73rd Street. It was still a very small, small, well-known, well-established at that point. It was – they had recently done – I got there shortly after Ain't Misbehaving and Mass Appeal and Crimes of the Heart and um, – Stayed, worked my way up, and ended up as general manager. So I was there 19 years. What was it like? How, how, it's not always easy to work one's way up within an organization. I've heard had many people say to me that in theater, to move up, you have to move on. Well, I was really. I, I think I was. I suspect that's true if the organization isn't changing. The thing that was so exciting about my time there, and the reason I think that I was there 19 years, because otherwise I might have gotten bored. Um, is that when I got there, we had probably 4,000 members, and by the time I left, we had you know 22,000 subscribers. The organization was evolving and changing, and if an organization is rapidly growing, then you have the opportunity to grow with it. If the organization has kind of reached, I think, 
a kind of stasis or its maturation point, then it really is hard to move up. And and that is, you know, then it's only if someone leaves, then you might move into that job. But we were expanding. I mean, when I started at MTC, I think the staff was probably 20 people all in. And by the time I left, the staff was 60. So, you know, when you're looking at that kind of – and the budget went from $3 million to 13 or $14 million. So when, when that's happening, then you have an opportunity to grow with it. And so, uh, I mean, I feel, I feel really lucky that I, I kind of feel like I've – given where I started, where and when I started working and what my first jobs were, I really have the advantage of – knowing people who were in the not-for-profit theater movement at the beginning, even though, you know, I'm still here and I was a lot, I mean, I was a baby, but I got to see and hear and observe the founders when they were still really out there working and talking and fighting the good fight. And so, I mean, I remember when I was at FADAPT, part of what we did was publications and reprints. And, I mean, there were speeches that Zelda Fitzchandler was giving, who at that point, you know, was actively running the arena, talking about why the arts were important and how you had to fund the arts and how what was the balance between funding and self-reliance. And so I, I – and to have known Lloyd Richards, you know, when Lloyd was at the top of his game at the O'Neill Center and then coming into Yale and creating that environment, which was – you know, extending the home for new writers, bringing Fugard back to this country. I mean, those were – so it, it's, been, it's been a fabulous arc. And, and I came into New York in the early 80s and really have lived – seen the maturation of a bunch of institutions, whether it's places like the Roundabout or MTC, which were small and have grown large, or it's places like Playwrights Horizons, which obviously has grown but has has kind of – I think, you know, done such a fabulous job of fine-tuning and strengthening their mission, and they're so on point. So it's been a great – it's been really – it's really exciting. It's been fun all along. I think part of the challenge now, and it it may be what, you know, some of the people you're talking about are referencing, is I think it's hard for mature organizations to remember that, you know, you got to let – you got to let the new voices in. I mean, you, know, you got to get it. There, there should always be a kind of churn, and there should, I think, and in an arts organization, it should always be a little messy. Hmm. And you know, the mess, the mess needs to be embraced a little bit. So, after 19 years mm-hmm. at one of New York's premier producing organizations, you made a change by going to an organization. Well, what, actually, which what is, I did was I took uh, I took a year. I oh. mean, what I I left MTC not knowing what I was going to do. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I I. It had been 19 years and, you know, there were I, very important years. I produced a whole lot of – I had a lot of very deep relationships and what, I knew it was time to do something else. You know, it was that kind of, I, call, I call it that mid-40s crisis and there is one and I knew it was time to do something else and I didn't really know what that was going to be. And I was blessed because I took the leap and did some consulting and I said I'm going to give this a few months and – the position at TDF became available about five months after that. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I knew that I didn't want to work. I'm a nonprofit type. And so, but I loved Broadway. 
And I loved, you know, there was something, there were, I'd done open-ended runs when I was at MTC. We'd done work on Broadway. There are times where I think, you know, the most adventurous, committed people in the world are Broadway producers who are mortgaging their houses to do a production, which they deeply believe in, which they have no idea of knowing whether or not anyone's going to come see it. And so it was, I, I didn't, but I didn't want to work completely in commercial theater and I didn't want to leave New York. And I'd been at one of the premier institutions. So it was really hard. And when this job came along, I thought, well, this this might be a way to put all these things together and make a living, which I still needed very much to do. And so I pursued it and, and was very happy to get it. And then I began to discover that not only did it fit all those things I already knew, that, you know, the mission of the organization was something that really resonated for me. And the the early transition was an understanding. I'd always known from the producing side, I think, what it was that TDF did in terms of tickets, in terms of the booth, in terms of the membership program, how critical our role was in keeping shows running. What I didn't understand until I got there was how critical the organization was in the lives of New Yorkers. Because we have this membership program and, and, you know, there are a variety of categories that you can fit in to be eligible for membership. But that's 80,000 people now whose primary way of accessing theater and dance is through us. And they are really, you know, we serve an enormous slice of New York. And I didn't realize it. I remember in my first year I got a letter from a TDF member the city was looking at cutting weekend bus service, express bus service from the outer boroughs. It was a budget crunch thing. And the TDF member wrote me and said, I assume that when you speak to the mayor, you will talk to him about the express bus issue. I was very tickled that she thought that the mayor and I were talking on a regular basis. But anyway, she went on to explain that for senior citizens like herself who did not ride the subway after dark, and it was dark in the late afternoon, without those express buses, they would not go to the theater. And that it was critical to her that she loved going to the theater. It was one of the great joys of being a New Yorker. And because of our membership, she could do it, but that she needed the bus. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute. There are a whole lot of people out there who we're making this possible for, who we're we're making it possible to go to the theater. And that was in the summer of 2001. And then, of course, we had the fall. And we had September 11th, and there was suddenly one was again mindful of the fact that without tourists, it was New Yorkers who were going to keep the theaters open and running. And so, again, you developed a kind of tone of voice and outreach to the members that said, you got to come to the theater. You know, let's keep doing this. And so it was developing that awareness that that the organization is about making it possible. The organization, we have you know, access programs for for people with physical disabilities. We have extensive education programs. And so it was much more of a fit than I think I even realized coming in the door. Mm-hmm. So, it, And it, it's been really rewarding because I do bring a kind of producing sensibility, but now I can pull back and think about things that you never have time to think about when you're producing. Mm-hmm. Did you go to TDF thinking there were certain things you wanted to do with it or was it really about discovering what it was already doing? I think I went to TDF thinking that 
in my conversations about coming to TDF, I thought that I could bring to the organization the point of view of someone who'd really been in the trenches very recently, because that's where I came from. And that, you know, the kind of, that it, there was, there was an opportunity to say, okay, let's think about this from the producer's point of view, or let's think about this, you know, what are some of the current issues? And so, but I think more than anything else, a lot of it I discovered. I, the things I knew were important. I knew that the place cared about plays. You know, there's a there's a whole part, the subsidy program that's about supporting plays of merit. I knew that it was a place where commercial and nonprofit intersected. I knew that it was a place that thought the theater was more important than taking sides, that wanted to be kind of a resource. And so that was all a that that and all of that proved to be true. But I th and I think it I think it has proved helpful that over the I think it was timely, certainly given the way things played out in the first year, that I did understand about producing and I did know what producers needed and I did know how scary it is when you don't know who's coming next week. And in the best of times, unless you've got, you know, a runaway hit, you're a little worried about who's coming, maybe not next week, but next month. And, you know, in that first year, people were really worried about who was coming next week. And so that kind of impetus to do everything we could to fill seats became, became kind of tantamount. You mentioned the subsidy program, and I'm guessing that's the program that so often when we see on the on a playbill, uh, the production would like this to thank uh, TDF for support for its support. The, I'm really curious about how that program. The way works. the subsidy program works is members back up a teeny bit. Mem productions make tickets available to TDF at a deep discount, and they do that knowing that our members are. Students or senior citizens or union members or staff members at nonprofits, job categories or classifications or life conditions that suggest you might not be able to afford full price. And then, you know, one of the ideas was from the very beginning if you could help build audiences in the early part of a show's run, you generate word of mouth and then the shows run longer. A show can apply for subsidy. And what that means is there's a committee that reads scripts. If the show is approved for subsidy, TDF adds out of its own net revenues money to the price that the member pays. So if the member pays, for example, $28 for a ticket, the show that's getting subsidy, the show won't get $28. The show will get – I'm using – the show will get $37. Mm -hmm. And that $9 comes from TDF. And that comes from our net revenues and from general operating support. And so what that means is – and the way it works is we provide the subsidy. If, a, if the show recoups, then that subsidy is paid back and goes back into the kitty to be made available again. And if the show doesn't recoup, the show doesn't recoup mm. and we don't ever see it again. And we probably subsidize 80,000 tickets a year. So we're, which generally ends up being about twenty shows, twenty. We and we do Broadway subsidy, and we do off Broadway subsidy. And then one of the things that's happened since I got there is we're now also we've extended subsidy to the the, the not for profit off Broadway theaters, include in smaller numbers, mm -hmm. but including what are called the antic theaters, which are some of the smaller theaters where a lot of the new work gets done. 
So we also subsidize dance. We we subsidize about twenty thousand dance tickets a year, almost every engagement in New York City. So it's it's a way of helping to generate more revenue for the production early on up front, and that's what that thank you is. How do you decide what shows there, to support? There is a committee, and they read them. And I think it's a combination. I mean, it's very difficult because you are – the committee is making their decision based on what's on the page. And we all know that what's on the page is sometimes better than what ends up, sometimes not as good as. we all, You know, it all gets flushed out. But basically, we're, we're looking for – we're looking, you know, there's a tremendous commitment to new plays. So I think, you know, this is this is not the Pulitzer Prize reading committee. This is about intention. This is about effort. This is about is it a new voice? This is about is it a production maybe of an older play but with new people? Is it, you know, you can look at a Broadway season and you know the plays that are going to need – that may need a little extra boost. Now, you can't get subsidy if you aren't available to the members. So there are shows that one can imagine that will never get subsidy. They won't apply for subsidy. They don't need subsidy. Let's they, say Julia Roberts in Three gonna, Days of Rain. Not going to happen right. because they're going to sell – they're not – you know, they're going to be able to sell all of their tickets at full price. They're not going to come to the members. So there is a component of this that says, you know, this is this is available to people. The producers also have to be willing to make their tickets available to the membership program. So I, I think for the producers, it's, you know, it, it – in the very early days, in the earliest, earliest days at TDF, what we did is we bought tickets and we gave them away to, to like, teachers and young people. And, and that was a model that everybody figured out meant we would last about a year. And so very quickly it became tickets were available, we sold them, and then we did the subsidy piece. And the first, the first subsidy committee was a committee of one. It was Harold Clearman. And if he decided it was important, it was important. So, but but I think it's 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 a good partnership because for the you know for the nonprofits for the smaller nonprofits we say one a season, pick the one you know. So it's a way of helping to generate support for productions in particular where you know the 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 thing that goes beyond selling the tickets is our members are pretty knowledgeable theater goers. So in terms of word of mouth. They're good people to get into the theater early. So a show that is a little bit offbeat or a show that's not your slam dunk Broadway hit because it may not be a star driven or it may not, you know, any have the high name recognition, you want the TDF members in there. If you can get 6,000 members in there and 6,000 people each talk to five people and say they love, you know, that's that's your, right. that's suddenly you you got 30, your word of mouth. that's your word yeah. of mouth. And it's, so it's, it's part of a marketing plan. We're part, you know, I like to say, you know, I think, as you say, back in the old days when there was nothing other than full price in the booth and and half price twofers for students, it was pretty. You know, you 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 had enough people to get to opening, and then if you got good notices, you ran. If you got bad notices, you closed. It was not too complicated. Now, I think you know any show is going to have a whole marketing plan, and the booth, you know, TKTS may be part of that. The TDF membership may be part of that. Another direct mail campaign will be another part of that. I mean, when I was producing and managing, if we were in an open-ended run, I knew I always wanted 
X amount of the house every week, I was going to try and have BTDF because it, I viewed it as a base that I could build on because I was in it for the long haul. Hmm. And we all know inside the theater there's an enormous amount of, do you go to the booth? Shouldn't you go to the booth? Should you go on Tuesdays only, on alternate Thursdays only, on Saturdays when it's raining? I mean there's a whole kind of mythology which I used to engage in, which I now think was probably – a waste of energy, but used to, you know, there, there are, but we are part of a marketing plan. We should be, and that's what we're there for, that we want to partner with shows and we want to say, you know, use us for a piece of us, student matinees. We now often, we have a program called Stage Doors, which is, uh, there are eight classroom experiences and then the kids go to the theater. So four with their teachers, four with teaching artists before and after, and there's an economy of scale in bringing them to the same production because you can train more teaching artists, right? So if you can get 1,000 seats to one play, you can train 20 teaching artists on the one play, or you can get 200 seats to five plays, and you've got to do five training units. So about three years ago, we s- took a deep breath and started buying whole matinee houses. Hmm. And it's been a smashing success. The kids are prepared. The kids are well, you know, they're well behaved. I mean, there was a little anxiety about bringing a thousand kids into a Broadway theater on a Wednesday afternoon. And I think the first one may have been radio golf. And the house staff could not have been more. It was a fabulous partnership. The house manager welcomed the kids. It wasn't just here are the rules. It was we're glad you're here. We're excited to have you. And, you know, that – but that became a way that we could say to the shows, we'll buy a house early on. You know, we can – we can, you know, we, we can partner with you. Our programs can help you at the same time that you're helping us. And so that's the best way, I think, to look at TDF is to say that we're there to work with shows to try and figure out what's the best way we can help. Now, we can't possibly talk about each and every one of your programs, so I'm going to take a moment and say that for everything you don't hear about on this program, go to tdf.org. Go to www.tdf.org, A, for programs, and B, we have a whole lot. We've got great features, and we've got it's a good site. It's got a lot so, of information. So we'll, we'll put in that plug, but I want to ask you about another program in particular. I am struck by... The number of times I've had a conversation, I'll mention some of the people, Bill Finn will say, oh, I'm taking my TDF kids. And I was introduced to Mo Rocca recently, and he said, oh, I'm taking my nice. TDF kids. Um, this is all part, I believe, of the Open Doors yes. program. But these are high-profile people. In fact, Frank Rich, I believe, yes. also participates. Yes. So there's three very different names uh, from v- three very different walks of life all involved with kids through TDF. Um, can you talk about the Open Doors that, program? The Open Doors program is a program that Wendy Wasserstein started. And when Wendy started the program, Wendy had an idea. She, she basically was curious by herself. She was curious about whether or not it, theater would be relevant to kids. And so she had this idea, what if I took eight kids to the theater five or six times during the year? What would have happened? And she and Roy Harris, who's a stage manager, who was the stage manager for all of Wendy's stuff. Um, Roy, Wendy came to TDF. She knew about us. She knew we had an education program. And she met with our education director, Mariana Houston. And we did it for a year. We said, let's try it. 
And at the, they went to the theater and they had pizza. And at the end of the year, Wendy said to the kids, should we do this again? And they said, absolutely. So, the, you know, she did a second year. Um, and essentially the program – and what happened is the pro, she told a friend about it. And I think the first friend she told may have been Bill Finn. But she told the, – the, the link is Wendy's friends mm-hmm. at the beginning. That was the link. Very different kinds of people, but that was the link. And so she said, I'm doing this fabulous thing. And, of course, what Wendy learned early on and what the mentors – figured out early on, is it was as rewarding for them as it was for the students. And, of course, the reason for that is I think that in large part we spend a lot of time kind of being insulated in the theater. You know, if you're in the theater, it's really hard to get outside the theater and to get outside theater people and to get a slightly different perspective. And the kids had no idea, of course, who these, how important these people were that were taking them to the theater. Yeah. So it was like they called it the way they saw it. And so there was a – I think there was right away a freshness and I think there was an understanding. Again, you were reminded that what we – you know, you can – jaded is the wrong word because I don't know a lot of theater people who are jaded. But we can get used to what we do. And we, we spend can, a lot of time talking to ourselves. We talk sort of to ourselves and we get very familiar with what we do and we forget what it was like the first time we ever went and sat in a theater. And what happens with these kids is you are reminded every time what it was like the first time. And so the program, when I got to TDF, I think we were up to six or seven groups. We're now up to 22, 21 groups we'll have this year. The program has gone, grown because the mentors talk about it with their friends and colleagues. And in its essence, it's a combination of there are the mentors, there are the kids, there are the schools. I mean, the schools are – we're very clear about – we identify schools. The teachers are a key part of the partnership because the teachers have to come with the kids. They often go to Saturday and Sunday matinees. So these are teachers who are, you know, giving up of – yes, they get to sit in a room with these people, but – and the, the, the program has kind of three strengths. The first is that they go to the theater and they learn about the theater and they learn about it with the help and guidance of someone who understands the theater. The second is that the kids, not only do they go and have pizza, they have to write in a – they have to keep a journal. And they have to write in the journal after every outing. So they are – they have to sit down. And they have to actually commit to print, you know, their impressions, how it moved them, what they thought, what they liked, what they didn't like. And then the third piece is, and probably the crux of it, is the post-performance discussion. Because one of the things that Wendy felt really strongly about was not only was it that, let's find out, you know, not only was theater the birthright of New Yorkers, which she felt, but also that the opportunity to sit in a room with only 10 or 12 other people and have a discussion is an opportunity that not that those of us who have it take for granted. You're sitting in a classroom in a big New York City public school with 25 kids. You don't get that opportunity. And to sit in a room and, you know, I say I liked – I really liked it when that character did that. And you, Howard, say I thought that was awful and realize that we're both right. And that, you know, part of what you do is you have conversations and people agree or disagree. That's the real – I think that's the – at the end, that is the essential power and liberation of the program. And I think for the mentors, it's watching and listening to people have real conversations about the work. And the mentors pick the plays. 
So we don't we don't dictate. The mentors pick the plays, so they're making their own judgments about what their kids should see. The mentors know when it works. Sometimes they're you know will you constantly learn that you can't make judgments about what is a kid going to respond to and what aren't they going to respond to. Sometimes we'll be absolutely sure at the beginning of the year that a given play will be a slam dunk and they'll all just hate it. And then there'll be other plays and we'll think, oh, why in the world are they taking them to that? And it'll just be, it'll provoke the most profound post-performance discussion. So mm-hmm. it really, you know, it's all over the map. And as the year goes on and the mentors get to know the kids, you know, they tend to get more and more, they get, they get more and more precise in their conversations. You just said the mentors choose the plays. Who chooses the kids? We choose the, we choose the schools because you got to have schools that will be effective partners. The teachers then recommend the group is eight students, and the teachers usually identify twenty kids, and they have to write an essay about why they would like to be an open door scholar. Why they, we call it an open door scholarship. The teachers write essays, and then based on the essays, the teachers select the the eight students. Hmm. And you know, it, you, uh, I don't. That's the teacher. That's what teachers know how to do is to figure out what's the kid who's the most. And it, and it's hard. I mean, you realize, of course, you know, these kids are. They've got to not work on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, there's a certain amount of juggling because high school kids have jobs. You know, they're, they're making a commitment as well. It's not just something that they're being given on a silver platter because they've got to juggle their work assignments or their family assignments or they've got to not be able to babysit. You know, there's a whole lot of things that go into it. Hmm. So, And then the final piece is, and this was something Wendy felt really strongly about, is that when they're done, the program buys gift certificates to the booth. And each kid gets – each student gets $100 in gift certificates to take someone to the theater the next year. And as long as they write us and tell, email us and tell us what they saw and who they took with them, then we'll give them the, – we'll buy them for them every year for up to four years. Because the wow. idea was that – you know, the problem was that Wendy identified was we were turning these kids on. They go to the theater six times. They graduate. And these these kids are highly motivated. They go to college, most of them. Um, But they don't have the money to go to the theater. Ultimately, they're going to get jobs and have money, but they certainly don't have it while they're in school. So this is a way, A, of providing them with the opportunity to keep going, and B, helping them learn to make choices about what they're seeing and who they should take to what kind of play, i.e., as one wrote, I was taking my girlfriend and I wanted to impress her, so I went to a play I'd seen with my group because I knew I could talk about it. Or, you know, I was taking my mother and I knew she would like – so they're thinking about that process that you and I go through without even knowing we're doing it of saying, I'm going to see such and such. Now, who do I know would like to see that, right? Who's the right person to bring to that, which we do intuitively? People have to be trained to do that if they don't go all the time. And that's part of what we're doing is we're training them to have a kind of sustainable theater-going habit. And drop a few names. Who are some of the mentors we haven't mentioned? Um, we haven't mentioned – There, we have a whole bunch. We haven't mentioned Scott Ellis. We haven't mentioned Derek McLean. We haven't mentioned Kirsten Childs, Mark Brokaw. Um, Mark Brokaw, we haven't mentioned um, Lar Lubavitch. We have a dance group. We haven't – we talked about Mo. I mean, I'm going to leave some out. And that's Kathleen that's Marshall. Okay, but it's, but it's, it's a it's, whole it's, roster. And no one ever wants to stop. Which is, I get. I mean, you know, someone will get a gig and they're going to be out of town for the most of the year and they can't do it and they'll be heartbroken. It'll be like, hold my place. So we have mm-hmm. guest mentors, right? We have people who come in and do it for a year and then go away and then they come back. Huh. 
What would you say of the many programs that TDF does is is the one that is perhaps least known but you think highly influential or highly important to what you do? That's a good question. That's a tough question. We have a program that a residency arts playwriting program, which is a program where we're in the schools with the kids. It's a year semester long program teaching them playwriting. And in terms of absolute long term impact, you know, that one's always a little scary because at the end of the term the kids we have actors perform what the kids write and some years they're very interested in global topics and some years they're interested in relationships and some years they're interested in fights with their parents. So they, they range widely, but none of those young people could imagine having written 10 pages of dialogue at the beginning of the term. And they do by the end. I think that's an important program. I don't, you know, we have a custom collection we rent to 500 organizations around the country. I, I think at the end of the day, the program... You know, I, I, the the fantasy that or the image that I stick with is the image that happens often in the spring towards the end of the term. You know, I always have them put in my calendar everything that we do in it, when we have an event, you know, or a matinee, student matinee or open caption or whatever. And there are days when even without – you know, 20 shows on sale at the booth and everything the members are seeing. There's more stuff going on than fits in the box in an Outlook box. (laughs) And I sat there one day and I added it up and I realized that on a Wednesday afternoon through us, probably 12,000 people had gone to the theater that afternoon. And that's what I think is important that we have a terrible, we we have some branding issues because we have the booth and everything else. But that's what I think is special about what TDF does is it makes we, – we, we enable those people to do that. And that's our job. That's what we're here to do. Um, but we do it. And they sit down and the curtain goes up and you and I both know that's magic. And that's really important. You said earlier on as we were talking about institutions that for – it's interesting to be in institutions that keep growing and there are opportunities for people in organizations that grow. So presuming um, that you have to put that into practice yourself, where would you like to see TDF five or ten years from now? Where are the places you still think there are opportunities for the organization? I think two things. I, I'm I'm really – it's been it's been a really exciting three years. We've moved the offices, moved the costume collection, opened a new booth in Brooklyn, built the TKTS booth in Duffy Square, and I'm really glad we've done real estate, and now I hope we're done with it for a little while. And I like to say, in funding speak, we've stabilized the infrastructure, okay? So having done that, I think where we need to go now is something that I was talking about a little bit earlier. I think two things. I think, I think audience development is critical for the survival of the field. I think if you, you know, there was a national endowment study released this summer. I mean, arts attendance is going down across the board. There has been a steady, slow decline, all art forms. I think that theater is becoming less and less relevant to the lives of more and more people. Our job and where I would like to see us go is I would like to see us 
get engaged in the very hard work of building audiences because the why is it hard work? The return is very small. If you sit down in a room with 20 people, none of whom have ever been to the theater, you're probably only going to convince two of them or maybe three of them to become people who go to the theater two or three times a year. That's not a great yield. On the other hand, because so few people go, if you can you know, increase by two or three people, you've made a big difference. I, I invite artists and folks in to talk to the board periodically because I, I think it's important for our board to hear from the people we, we, we are serving and work with. And I remember Robin Goodman, who's a producer, came in and Robin was talking about how the audience for a new dramatic play in New York, which used to – you used to have an audience of six to eight months of New Yorkers, and that's down to three or four months, right? The audience for serious work has shrunk. And so serious work where you aren't able to get a star that's not – but just as a play, right? And so if you could take that from three months back to four months or from four months back to six months, you've made an enormous difference in the life of a production. It doesn't take a lot of people to do that. It's our job. It's TDF's job to test ways to do that because producers don't have the money, whether you're nonprofit or commercial. A general manager who says, I have a really interesting idea about how to get people to see this play. I have no idea if it will work, but I really want to try it. That's a career-ending statement, right? I mean, I'm going to spend your money and it might work. You know, mm-hmm. No, what they want to hear is I have this idea and I'm pretty sure this is going to work, right? You don't have – there's not a lot of room. There's not a lot of margin for error. We should make the mistakes, we should be the ones trying out tactics to see if it'll work. So that's one place I think we need to go. And the other place I think we need to go is I think we really do need to continue to focus on issues related to within the framework of building audiences, what are ways that you nurture new plays and what are ways that you nurture audiences for new plays. We're going to publish a book this fall, which is the culmination of a four-year study that we've been doing on new play production that Todd London has written on barriers to new play production. What are the lives of American playwrights today? And, you know, TDF used to do, and this is a, a going back into real research work, some real unbiased research on issues that are important. And I think I would like to see us do more of that. We've been doing some market research on, as I said earlier, barriers to theater attendance. So I think the two things would be research and building audiences and really trying to do take some take some risks that other folks aren't in a position to take because they got to keep their doors open. You know, there there are I think coming out of when whenever it is as we tape this some there are just debate about whether we're, you know, at the end of this recession or still in the middle of this recession. But I think, you know, the fallout for arts organizations, whether you're talking nonprofits and fundraising or commercial theater, I think it's going to be – it's real. And I think, you know, our job – I would like to see us helping to insulate people from some of that so that we don't end up going back 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I will say again for more, www.tdf.org. You'll say it with me and I will say – Victoria Bailey, Executive Director of the Theater Development Fund, thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our Director of Web Development is Rob Perry, and our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. 
Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.